It is great to see you all this morning. Thank you guys for being here at Christ Fellowship at Little Miami. If you're just joining us for the first time this week, let me recap. And if you've been here for several weeks, let me recap on where we've been. Today, we're actually wrapping up a series on divine community. We're talking about the church. And so as we began the series, we, we first started by focusing in on what the church is and what the church is not. We talked about Christian fellowship. We then talked about order in the church, that the church is a place of, of servant leadership, of authority structures that are different from the world. On our third week as we gather, we talk about Christian practices, baptism, uh, the, the process of discipleship, taking of communion, the praying together, uh, all of these practices that the church engages in, in on a regular basis. On week four as we gathered together, we talked about worship. We spent an entire week focusing in on the issue of worship. Then we talked about prayer the following week. We looked at the Lord's Prayer, or more appropriately, the disciples' prayer, as it's a prayer he gives to us. And then last week as we got together, we talked about being a community of confession. This week as we gather, we're going to talk about being a community of courage and correction. Courage and correction. I am, by my nature, a nervous driver. Uh, it's, it was a tragedy, I'm sure, for most of the people who tried to help me learn how to drive back when I was doing driver's training. And for those of you who have ever tried to train a teenager how to drive, you know how horrifying an experience that can be. Amen. I remember clinging to the wheel as my brother was taking me in the car and just shaking and like the whole car just jarring a little bit. It was, it was awful. But my family stuck with me. They helped me to learn how to drive. I remember one particular instance where my father insisted I learn how to drive a stick shift, and which, of course, is useful for almost no one anymore because they, they hardly make them anymore. But I went out to learn how to drive a stick shift, and if you've ever had that experience, you know how traumatic that can be. Because it's not like you're just messing up. You're messing up, and people are honking their horns at you. They're laying into you, and it's just like this crucible of angst. Right? And so you're stalling out, and you're trying to get it in gear, and you're trying not to wreck, and you're, you know, there, it's, it's a, this multitasking phenomena. Well, in the midst of this, I was doing what most teenagers do. I was failing over and over and over again. My father was offering me correction. Nope, do this. Nope, not that much gas. Too much gas. Uh, you know, and, and trying to get the instruction together. But then he did something extraordinarily wise. He said to me, Ben, I'm really tired. I'm going to tell you what I mean. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go over to go to sleep here in the side seat you're fine. He wasn't really tired. He faked being asleep. And so he faked like he was sleeping, and, and to my astonishment, and probably his astonishment too, I performed flawlessly. As soon as that trust had been vested in me, as soon as he gave me that encouragement of saying, I know you've got this, it's under your control, as soon as that happened, a lot of the pressure released, and I simply drove. Isn't it amazing that the Lord our God turns the wheel of our lives in human history over to us? That he says, I trust you. And he encourages us with this idea that, that you're in control, not just of your life, but I'm putting my church in your charge. You are going to be my body here on planet Earth, exemplifying me to the nations. This bunch of screw-ups, this kind of screw-up, and the God of this universe says, you got this. It's amazing, it's astonishing, and it is wonderful. Encouragement is important, would you agree? It's important in the world. Encouragement is vital in the church. But you guys already know that because most of you memorized a scripture this past month that said exactly that thing, correct? Yeah, yo, you better. There's an old phrase in Christendom. Listen to this phrase, it's great. The church exists to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. The church exists to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. In other words, there are some people who are just kind of lazy and just rolling through life, and the church is meant to say to those people, step it up, get going, you've got to start moving. And for those who are beaten down by the world, the church comes in alongside those individuals and loves on them and comforts them, encourages them to get up and get going. It's these dual categories, these responsibilities of the church that I want to focus on today. The church exists to encourage and to correct. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right, but you'll get a lot more out of this if you've got a Bible with you. So bring a Bible every week. Uh, if you need to know what kind of Bible to get, just talk to me. We'll, we'll help set you up with something. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to camp out here throughout the whole of our message. You're not going to need to turn out of this passage. I'll give you other scripture references, but just stay here. We're going to focus in 
on the church in this particular place. When Paul wraps up a letter, you might have noticed this happens. As he's getting toward the end of a letter, he, he just hits us suddenly with this barrage of theology. It's like a machine gun of theology, just one incredible teaching after the next, and they, they come so rapid fire, it's almost hard to process them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is one of those. Now, why does this happen? Because of what I would like to call the birthday card effect. Have you made a birthday card for someone? We've all done that, right? And you start out and everything's grand and you're like, okay, big H, H, gigantic A, big P, I'm starting to run out of space. P slightly underneath that P. Y, barely in the margins, like completely different than the rest of the letters. Do you know what I mean? Because you're running out of space. And it's very much the case that the disciples experienced this when they wrote letters. Parchment was an expensive commodity. And so when you sat down to write a letter, you usually had a certain number of pieces of parchment, and Paul would, he would uh, speak out the words of the letter, and a scribe would sit and write down those words on paper, well, on parchment. And as that happened then, the scribe would probably be going, okay, Paul, we've got two sheets left. Paul, we're down to one sheet now. Paul, half a sheet. And, and so what you get is, at the end of these letters, you just get this, you know, this, and then this, and then this, and then this, because Paul's cramming in a lot of ideas at the end. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5 looks like. But the great part about that is it comes with, like, very short sermons. <laughs> Not that this is going to be a very short sermon. <laughs> but that each of these phrases, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're told, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Each one of those is a sermon unto themselves. I mean, that's, that's powerful theological teaching. We're going to spend some time with Paul as Paul gives courage to the Thessalonian church. Before we do, let's open up with a word of prayer. Our Lord and God, thank you so much for the opportunity to fellowship as believers today, to spend time with one another. And God, as, as we get engaged with your word right now, I, I pray again that you would speak through and past me if necessary. Lord, that that the ears of the listeners would be attentive, that we would be attached to the word, thinking it through, meditating on it. And Father, that, uh, that you would help me to say exactly what you need me to say. Lord, I praise you for your word. I praise you for the Apostle Paul and, and for the Thessalonican church and all that they had to go through so that we could learn from them from this letter. It's in your most precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Breaking down this sermon into three parts, it's not unusual. The first part is going to be keep going. We're going to talk about encouragement. Keep going. The second part is going to be get going. That is correction for those who are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And the third part is going to be keep it between the ditches. All right, so we're going to first start discussing encouragement. Keep going. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 is a phenomenal passage to memorize. I think every Christian would do well to memorize it. The passage says this, but encourage one another daily so long as it's called today so that you will not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage one another how often? Daily. Well, just as long as it's called today, which would be every day, right? You've got a sense of humor in the Bible. <laughs> Encourage one another daily, so long as it's called today, so that you will not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encouragement is a mandatory feature of the church. Our, our scripture passage said exactly that. But what is encouragement? What is encouragement? Think of the word courage for a moment. What does it mean to have courage? Now, most of us, when we hear that, if you're if you're a normal part of this culture, you think, well, courage is when you're not afraid, right? Incorrect. Courage is not when you're not afraid. You might just be stupid. Stupid people aren't afraid, right? So courage is more than that. Here's, here's the deal. Courage requires that we have fear. Courage requires that we are intimidated. You cannot have courage unless you have fear. You cannot have courage unless you are intimidated. Courage is when we are bold in spite of how we feel. Does that make sense? When we are bold in spite of what we feel. So to encourage someone is when somebody shows up in your life and they help make you bold in the midst of your fear. That's what the church is meant to do. We encourage one another. This is a place for encouragement in tough times. Let's talk a little bit about the Thessalonian church before we get into this. The letter of 1 Thessalonians is written during a time in their history when... Uh, when the church was having intense struggles. You see, Paul, this apostle, he'd gone to uh, Thessalonica with, 
one of his uh, followers, one of his compatriots named Silas. And the two of them started this church together. And they began building up the church. But even in its infancy, as it's a fledgling church, something happened. The local Jewish community, because they were trying to destroy Christianity in that region, went to the Romans. And they started telling the Romans, look, this group over here, they're advocating that people worship this other king, King Jesus. They're telling people not to worship Caesar. And so the Roman officials and the Jewish officials came crushing down on this brand new emerging church. And they were experiencing such harsh persecution. By the way, you can read about this in Acts 17. That Paul and Silas had to be uh, smuggled out of the city during the night. Now imagine, you've got this responsibility for this church. You just have began training all these new believers. And suddenly they're experiencing torment and torture and ostracizing from the community, and you're forced to leave. You'd probably be like a parent that had to leave their kid, right? And that's how Paul felt. He was very concerned for the church at Thessalonica. But he couldn't go back there, and Silas couldn't go back there because they would be killed on sight by a lot of people who were there. So he sends his disciple Timothy, go to Thessalonica, find out how everyone's doing. And Timothy comes back, and what Timothy says just astonishes Paul. Timothy says, They're still suffering persecution, but the church is doing great. They're being beaten down by their surroundings, but the church is flourishing in the midst of that. So the book of 1 Thessalonians, part of what Paul is writing to the church is to say, guys, I'm so proud of you. This is great. And he's offering this this encouragement. It's a celebration of their faith in spite of circumstances. It is a wonderful thing. How is it that the church of Thessalonica can maintain such great morale and faith in the midst of conflict? Well, I said it right there in the question. The church of Thessalonica is the church. And the church thrives in conflict and difficulty. It's part of what the church does. I'm not just saying that as kind of a, just an arbitrary thing I'm tossing out. It's a demographic fact. If you look at the world cultures where Christianity thrives and flourishes. It's precisely in cultures where Christianity is under the thumb of a government or being opposed by the peoples of that nation. That's where Christianity thrives. Where it gets fat and lazy and falls apart, places like our country, where it's fairly easy to be a Christian, but it's not so easy to be a Christian in this culture anymore, is it? We're starting to head in a little bit of a different direction as a culture. The church in Thessalonica thrived because they were being the church. They had servant leaders. They had people who came to faith and were baptized. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the Lord's Supper, to prayer, to worship. They were confessing their sins to one another. They were doing church, and in so doing, they were doing great. The church is here for rough times. Our culture is getting a little bit weird. I mentioned that before. Uh, I want you to just think about the term fake news for a moment. That's a, that's a, I mean, it's amazing how integral that is to our system of understanding the world right now. When, if I had said that word 10 years ago, everybody had been like, what? What's that? Fake news? It's actually a very old concept. We get it from Joseph Stalin. Did you know that? He first coined the term disinformatia, disinformation. And the idea was this. You throw a whole bunch of misinformation. You manage people's attention. You generate confusion and chaos by producing conflicting stories and wrong stories, and you just spam them out there so the average person goes, I have no idea what's true and what's false. And if you've been listening to the news for any amount of time, you've been getting misinformation, conflicting stories, buried facts, partial truths, and you're probably thinking much of the same thing. This is confusing, as it is meant to be. Someone or many someones are sabotaging the information age. The result is there are a lot of people who tend to hate a lot of people for no good reason at all because we're being consistently divided out. You're part of this tribe, you're part of this tribe, you're part of this tribe, you're part of this tribe. And so people look at each other and like, I hate them. Why? I just do. They're not right. I'm right. Now, that might work out okay for the world. It does not work out okay for the church. The church of Jesus Christ is not meant to be tribal on the level that cultures typically are. We're to love our enemies, and we're not always doing such a great job of that. Even when we're being targeted, even when we're being persecuted, the rest of that phrase, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The idea is even if you're suffering difficulty for the sake of Christ, we continually lift up those people and love those people. To our shame, Christians are being sucked into this, uh, but the thing is, is we're also being targeted 
You see, we're an impediment to progress. When the world looks at a Christian, they think, that person clings to ideas that are keeping us from getting to where we're going. And nobody ever stops to ask the question, where are we going? It's an important question. The culture doesn't seem to know or care. But we're going there. Some of my favorite books in Christian history were framed up on the idea that our lives are like a road. There's this book by John Bunyan. It's, a, it's a, an English classic called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a phenomenal book. Read it. But The Pilgrim's Progress describes life as sort of this road, this journey that individuals are taking. And they've got all their various trials, but they have to keep getting on the road and keep progressing on the road. C.S. Lewis wrote a book in, in kind of counterpoint to this called A Pilgrim's Regress, where he described how God had brought him down this road to where he was. I want us to be thinking about life as sort of this road, and the church is meant to keep us sort of between the ditches, to keep us in the right place and encourage us, keep going. This is what Paul's going to be doing at the front end of 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 5. The church draws strength from its own in times of difficulty. I told you this was a demographic fact. Chris Carter actually sent me a, um, a great a great analysis of this this past week. There's a Gallup poll that's being conducted every year on the mental stability, the mental wellness of people in our culture. So, for instance, in 2019, this, this particular Gallup survey concluded that 43% of people in the American populace were mentally excellent. They're, they were morale-wise, they were excellent. They were doing well as far as their mental health. 43%. How do you think we did in 2020? As you might expect, in 2020, there was a 34% excellence. There was a 9% fall in a year in terms of how people were doing mentally. All right? Only 34% were said to be mentally excellent. That being said, the fall happened in every demographic category, every category of personage except one. Guess which group got a higher morale during that time? Christians who attend church every week. The Christians who go to church every week went up. Everybody else went down. Why? Because the church is a place of encouragement. When the church is just being the church, it's an encouraging place. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 describes this. The church is encouraging when it's the church. The church is the place for an encouraging perspective. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. This should sound familiar to me, you guys. <laughs> and let us consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds. Not, a, not abandoning. It's on the screen. <laughs> we are a church who can mostly read. All the more as you see the day drawing near. We encourage one another. We're not forsaking the fellowship of believers, but this last part is interesting. All the more as you see the day drawing, what day? Judgment day. The day. That is coming. I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to say this phrase, judgment is coming. Ready? Close your eyes. Ready? Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. I get the chills when I even think that. Go ahead and open up your eyes. Is that a reality for you as a believer? Paul says this to the Thessalonican church. He goes, look, look, judgment is coming. It is, it is on its way. Are we closer to the day of judgment than he was? I'm not, I'm not saying that we're in the end times, but I am saying this. We're one day closer than we were yesterday. And Paul uses this as an encouragement for the church. Let's look at the passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 through 4. Now, on the, on the topic of times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need for anything to be written to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord will come in the, in the way of a thief in the night. Now, when they are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction comes on them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will surely not escape. Whoa. Now, I'm reading this passage, and I'm going, hey, Paul, Paul is going to be giving a final encouragement to the Thessalonican church. And so I know this chapter is about encouragement. I see how he's working encouragement into this. But he starts out this encouragement by going, hey, guess what? They're going to die. And worse than that, they're going to stand before God in judgment and they're going to be destroyed. And my initial knee-jerk reaction was, 
Is that encouraging, Paul? That sounds kind of harsh. I mean, it doesn't seem very Christ-like. And then I stop myself and go, Ben, you're a moron. (laughs) Who's going to be doing the judging? That would be Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Romans chapter 2. On that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of mankind through Christ Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus says this. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. We will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. He will be the one rendering judgment Do you think he's not happy about it? Well, you might be thinking, no, he's upset about it, isn't he? Read your scriptures more closely. My impression of Jesus lamenting the large loss of human beings at the end of of human history is largely framed up on a misperception that we have where we think that Jesus Christ was just some sort of ancient Mr. Rogers. He is not. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, and he has extended love and grace and mercy. And for those who reject it, and especially for those who reject it and persecute his church, judgment is coming. The Lamb of God is also the Lion of Judah. Will Jesus be mourning and lamenting at judgment? I suspect not. That is going to be a day of celebration of cosmic justice. I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think about what God means when he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, declares the Lord. He's telling you, you shouldn't take revenge, but he is saying this, there will come a day where I will take revenge. Payday, someday. That's going to happen. Now, if you don't like that idea, maybe you're a little concerned about what happens to you on judgment. If you're in Christ, you don't need to be. If you don't like that idea about judgment coming along, Maybe it's because you haven't thought about how badly Christians are treated around the world right now. I mean, listen, if I were to ask this room, like, what's the biggest persecution you suffered as a believer? Most of us would be saying something like, well, some people scoff at me sometimes. Like, when I say something about God at work, people are like, really? That's what they did to you? Ouch. You know, we got brothers and sisters being crucified in other places in the world right now. Eleven Christians a day, at minimum, are being killed specifically for their faith, because they were preaching Jesus Christ. That's happening all over the world right now. We have brothers and sisters in Christ that were pressed to death in the first century. That means they put weights on them until they were crushed. They were dragged to death through the streets. They died from inflicted wounds by being drugged down the street, or they were dragged by a bull up to the steps of the local Colosseum. They were killed by animals, suffered by animals. There There are people today being killed all over the world, and to them, do you think judgment sounds good? You better believe it does. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I don't like fishing. Confession, I don't like fishing. Not entirely true. I actually like one part of fishing. I like when you're sitting with the pole and the the lines going into the water and everything's right. But that's never my experience with fishing. My experience with fishing, from the moment I try to start fishing, is these lines are tangled. I can turn my head this way, I turn back, and the the line is in a knot. It's like tied around itself, where the reel starts malfunctioning. I'm constantly having to put on bait and, and swap out lures or just cut the line because it's too much of a travesty and mess. That's my experience generally with fishing, and I'm, I'm not good at like that minutia, like working with small things, so I get flustered. Do you ever feel like the world is just one giant tangle? It's one enormous mess. You look around at this world, and you see the people who reside here and the things that are going on here, and you think, how do I navigate this? Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, take a deep breath, literally. This is not your mess to fix. The God of this universe says that he is going to take care of all this. And this is why this is encouraging. Judgment is coming. God is going to sort the mess. He is going to fix all of these things. Are you frustrated when you look around, when you see the cheats, the liars, the cruel, the manipulators? When you see the deceivers and the charlatans, the wicked, the power brokers, the vile tyrants, the predators, you're looking at them and you're like, they're getting away with it. Good news. They're not getting away with it. You cannot pull one over on God. 
You can't get a lawyer to intercede for you. There's no place that you can hide from his judgment. Paul told a battered church body, a people who are being abused daily, he said this, be encouraged, judgment is on its way, they will surely not escape. And that's good news. If you're still doubting that, and you're like, well, that's just Paul being Paul. I mean, after all, these people were kind of mean to him, so maybe he's just relishing the idea of those people judge, being judged by Jesus. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 3. He relishes the idea of the judgment day. Revelation chapter 6, we get this snapshot of the throne room of the living God as, as we're seeing kind of this temple complex, and there's a description of the altar that sits there. And beneath the altar, do you know what's there? Or who's there? The martyrs, those people who have been killed for their faith, they're there beneath the altar. And let's look at what they say. Here's what they say. They cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told that they were to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were to be killed had been completed also. It's okay for us to join the martyrs in their prayer. How long, O oh Lord, will you refrain? And to call out for his judgment and justice. When you see the supervillains of this world, when you see powers and power structures that are vile and wretched, take a deep breath, be the church, and look at the church and say, it's okay. God's got it. Let me tell you about the best fishing experience I've ever had. I told you I didn't like it. But I told you something that's not entirely true. My father took us fishing in uh, Alabama one year. We rented a fishing boat, and we went out with professional fishermen who made it their business to make us feel like we were great fishermen, right? And so they, they catered to the tourists. They basically did everything they could to make sure the fishing experience was great. So you cast a line in, and uh, if you get snagged, they're like, give me that pole. Take this pole. And, and you brought the line in, you caught the, you know, a huge fish, and they'd be like, we got it. And they put it in, that's great, that's a keeper. And they bait the hook again, go, go, go. And immediately, line's back in the water. It was a marvelous experience, and that is essentially what we're getting from God when it comes to judgment. He's saying, look at this wreck. Everything that you think you have to do, you don't have to do. You keep moving down the road, I've got this. Payday, someday, judgment is coming. Church, are you encouraged? Amen and amen. Christians are encouraged by the idea that this road is going somewhere. We're to remind one another of that. We should also be encouraged because we see things differently. Look at verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness for the day to overtake you like a thief would. You're not in the darkness. Verse 5. For you are sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then we must not sleep as the rest, but must stay alert and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Did you see the two depictions? We've got two worlds here. On the one hand, we have the world out there, those who are not saved. And he describes those people as, as in darkness, like stumbling around like they're drunk, like they can't see, they can't perceive rightly. It's one big fugue. And then there's, on the other side, there's those who are the sons of the light, the sons of day. And he, this is Paul describing the Christians. He's going, you guys are different. You are alert. You're sober. You're seeing things clearly as they are. Have you ever been reading a book or watching a movie and thought, man, it would be great if the narrator would speak to the protagonist. The narrator seems to know what's going on. Wouldn't he be able to just, I mean, he could help them out quite a bit, couldn't he? Wouldn't it be great if the author showed up into this story in the midst of their crisis and said, hey, here's the end of the story. It's going to be okay. Just keep going. Have you ever been asked the question, how, how can you Christians be so sure about what you say? I mean, you seem so confident. Isn't that arrogant? Isn't that prideful? No. You are sons of the light. You are sons of the day. The author has spoken to us. The narrator has revealed the story. The author has told us the end. We have every reason to be encouraged and emboldened. Amen? The church encourages one another with perspective. The, the, the church encourages one another by reminding one another where this road is leading. And the church is a place for sober expectations. What? Sober expectations? Look at this passage, verse 8. This is weird. Hey, when you see something weird in the scriptures, 
it's probably important. When you see something weird, it's probably important. Generally the case. Verse 8. But since we are of the day, we must stay sober by putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet our hope for salvation. What? We got to stay sober by putting on armor. Well, that seems weird. These seems like, like just divergent ideas. What do these things have in common with one another? What is sobriety? What does it mean to be sober? To be sober is to be accurate, to be realistic, to see things clearly, to be dealing with reality. Does the world describe Christians that way? Generally, when we are seen by the world, it's you people are engaged in wishful thinking, you chase fairy tales, right? Paul says the opposite is true. It is the world that is deluded, that is in darkness. You are the only ones who are actually seeing clearly. And so he says this, be sober, and here's how you're going to defend yourself. Here's how you stay strong in the midst of this. Now, if you've read Ephesians 6, you've seen the full armor of God. This is kind of like the partial armor of God. You get a helmet and you get a breastplate. These are things that are meant for keeping your vitals intact. You don't want to take a shot to the head in battle. You don't want to take a shot to your vital organs. So he says, here's the things you need. Faith. Hope and love. Yeah, it's what you think. Faith, hope, and love. And if you're reading this in your Bible and you're just kind of blowing through it, you probably look at these words and you're like, oh, these are just vague Christian words. It's just vague Christian speak. No, it's not. The only reason it's vague Christian speak is because these words have been redefined by our culture from their original context and meaning. You will never find three words so abused from their original definitions as these three words, faith, hope, and love. Let me tell you what they mean according to the biblical context very quickly. This is important for the rest of your faith life. So if you're zoning me out, just zone in for this, right? Faith. When you hear the word faith, generally the world says faith is when you engage in wishful thinking, when you believe in something despite the evidence, right? So if someone calls me a person of faith, in my mind, if they're using the world's definition, they're probably insulting me. You're a person of faith. You're a person who checks your brain at the door. You just believe whatever is convenient for you. That is not biblical faith. The term faith in the Bible context means belief in something you have good reason to believe is true. It is trust in something you have good reason to believe is true. When I say faith, I want you to think the word trust. I say faith, you think, okay? If you say faith, I think trust. If you're reading and you see the word faith, think trust. Trust is something I have good reason to believe is true. I would trust my 17-year-old uh, son with my laptop computer. I would not give it to my 6-year-old. Does that make sense? It's based on experience. It's based on knowledge. It's based on understanding. I have faith in my 17-year-old son. I don't have the same faith in my 6-year-old. Make sense? All right, that is faith. And so he says, have that faith, have that confidence in God, have that trust in God. And when you do that, you're sober, you're seeing things clearly. If you see and experience God in this life and you think, I have good reason to believe in him, you see clearly. The second thing is love. And our culture says this about love. Love is a feeling we have. It's just something that happens to us. How do you know when it's love? I can't tell you, but it'll last forever. And so we, we, use, we use words like, I fell in love or I'm falling in love which is just like, like it's an accidental thing, like I tripped and suddenly, oh, I'm in love. How did that happen? I tripped. <laughs> love is not something that just happens to you. That is a worldly definition of that idea. In the scriptures, we're told that God is love. So if you want to know what love is, you should look to God to see who he is and what he does. The term love as it is used and applied to God is this. It is a choice that one makes. It's a choice to elevate someone else, even to your own detriment. It's self-sacrificial. It puts the other person above you. That's how God is described. Did God just have warm, fuzzy feelings about us, and that's why he sent his son to die? No. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He saw us, and we were his enemies, and he went, I love you, and he stepped into time history to die for us. That's what real love looks like. Apply that in your marriage. Apply that in parenting. Faith, love, the, the third one's butchered beyond the others even. Hope. So we will say phrases like this, I hope the Bengals win the Super Bowl next year, which means there's no way the Bengals are winning the Super Bowl next year, but wouldn't that be great? I hope I win the lottery. There's no way I'm going to win the lottery, but wouldn't, wouldn't that be great? That's not what the biblical definition of hope is. 
The, the word charis, the original word that is being used, means an expectation or anticipation of something that's coming. I'm anticipating something, and it's going to be here. It's definitely going to be here. I'm just really looking forward to it. So let me, let me pair an emotional knowledge of this for you. Um, remember what it was like to be a kid at Christmas. Do you remember that? So at, before Christmas is coming, I, I remember being a kid, and we set up the tree, and I just like lay underneath it and look up at the lights, and it's just, it was this magical time, this excitement of something that's on its way. It's coming. I just remember being like shaky giddy, like, oh, it's happening, it's happening. It's going to be here. That's how we're meant to be concerning the heavenly realm. Anticipation. When he says, hey, you want to be sober here? See clearly. This is what seeing clearly looks like. Put your trust in God. That's seeing clearly. This is what seeing clearly looks like. It's loving. It's, it's elevating others. That's what it looks like to know and understand the way the world is supposed to work. Do you want to know what seeing clearly looks like? It's hope. It's having an anticipation, this joyous anticipation of something that's about to happen. And that's where a Christian is meant to live. These are sober expectations. There is also a sober expectation that there will be no wrath for us. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no wrath for you at the judgment. You can know that. You can be certain of that. Because you're good? No. Because he has been good on our behalf. That's good news. Or as they call it, gospel. Verse 9 and 10. For God did not destine us for wrath, but for gaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are alert or asleep, that is whether we're living or dead, we will come to life together with him. This is a promise of God. One you can bank on. One you can hope in. Therefore, look at verse 11. Hey, whenever we see therefore in the text, we need to find out what it's... Oh, you guys are good. What's it there for? Paul's saying, because of everything I just told you, because you are sons and daughters of the light who are sober and alert and paying attention, because the world of darkness is passing away and is about to face judgment, because of these things, therefore, he says, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are in fact doing so here's how this looks for you and I. When someone in the church starts harping about everything that's happening in politics or what's going on in the world right now or the tangled mess that our culture is, it falls to other Christians around them to go, yeah, but we know how this turns out, don't we? We know the end. And yeah, it's happening, but it's not our mess to resolve. The God of this universe has this in his hands. It's not hinging on me. All I, all I know this, we just have to keep going. We've got a road and we're going to follow it. Let's just get back on the road. Let's keep going, guys. You're doing great. John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. It's going to be difficult. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. Be encouraged. I have overcome the world. Amen. All right, so sometimes we're telling one another to keep going. Giving each other the attaboy, nice job. Hey, get back on. Let's, let's just keep going. We're trucking down that road. We're doing the faith life. We're doing the church life. But sometimes we have to tell people to get going because they're not moving. We experience this in the church. Encourage those trying to lead. We start out this section of correction, this, this get going section, by first talking about something that might seem out of place. On the one hand, we've been talking about encouragement. Here are these encouraging things, and now we're going to talk about correction in the church, but sandwiched right in between is this idea that we've got to be really careful with how we treat people leading in the church. Look at the text. Verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who labor among you and preside over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them most highly in love because of their work. And then circle this next part. Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. It's not an accident that leaders are dropped in right between these two things. Here's why. Leaders are those most responsible for in the encouragement and correction of the congregation. They're also the most likely to get discouraged. Why is that? Well, look at the text. They labor hard among you. These are people who are serving. Remember, the servant leaders, we're not just talking about somebody who stands up in front and talks or sings. We're talking about people in the church who are working for the kingdom of God. And that's meant to be all of us to some level. They preside over you in the Lord. Um, most people think eldership is like a fun experience. It's mostly work. It's difficult to lead in a church. And the third thing is they admonish you. Why do these people need encourage? Because these are the people who are often called on to correct other believers. And that's not fun. 
anybody having fun correcting people in the church should not be correcting people in the church. It's not for them. This phrase, be at peace, is an important one. Because what's being said here, if I can just kind of paraphrase for you, this would be the Ben Walker paraphrase. Can you guys not be jerks? Can everybody just not be jerks? Let's not be jerks. Can we just be at peace with one another? Can we treat one another well? It's almost as if Paul knows that when somebody's in some kind of leadership capacity or when there's this interchange between them, that there's going to be conflict. And Paul's just like, don't be jerks. Be at peace with one another. Then we come to correction. Let's look at verse 14. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the undisciplined, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, and then circle this phrase, be patient toward all. So we've got two B statements. The first one is, be at peace among yourselves. And the second is, be patient toward all. If you can follow those two things, you're going to do great in a church. Amen? So let's talk about what this other stuff means. Admonish the undisciplined. Man, that's, that's a phrase you just don't use in day-to-day life, is it? Give an admonishment to someone. Is that? Yeah. I think that's hilarious. This is a comic book. And it's called Tales to Admonish. I thought that was funny. <laughs> All right, my sense of humor, maybe. Some of you guys are just staring. All right, admonish the undisciplined. Admonish means to counsel someone against something that's going to be disastrous for them, to warn someone. So what do we mean by undisciplined? Well, this is a big, awesome Greek word because it's a small word with a lot of meanings. Undisciplined is, uh, is someone who is a soldier who's outside of ranks, the soldier who's not lining up the right way. It means disorderly. It can mean insubordinate, like not adhering to what the officers have told them or unruly. So undisciplined then is someone who's not living in the faith. By our analogy of the road, this would be someone who's going the wrong way or in the ditch. Um, if you want to think about this in terms of believers and what they do, it's somebody who maybe they're, they're neglecting the fellowship of believers. They don't show up to church. Um, they are uh, maybe disregarding the moral uh, principles set forth by God, or maybe they're simply lazy. That is a person who needs to be admonished, corrected, rebuked. Hey, get going. Come on, man. What are you doing? Come on. Get back in. It is a correction. The second correction is comfort the discouraged. What's wrong with someone who's discouraged? The Greek word here is paramythomai. Paramythomai means to come alongside someone in a comforting or consoling way. So it's when I see somebody in the ditch and I show up and just sit down with them or hold on to them, right? It's like giving somebody a hug. The other word that is being used is parakalao. Parakalao is the word that's used for encouragement earlier in the text. And that has the idea of two people getting together, but it's the reverse. It's when you go, hey, get over here. Come on, we're going somewhere. That's that kind of encouragement. One goes and comforts, the other calls a person. Does that make sense? So comforting the discouraged here. Beat down and discouraged is not where a Christ follower ought to be living. You guys like Lord of the Rings? I love that. I love that series. I love the, the books. I love the movies. But one of my favorite lines in there I thought was just such a wonderful description was when Bilbo Baggins says, I feel tired, sort of thin, like butter spread over too much bread. That's a good description of discouraged. The term for discouraged means little spirited. Your spirit is made small. And so there are people, there are important people that are discouraged in the scriptures. You might think of the disciples after, after Jesus died. The disciples are in a condition of being discouraged. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's in a position of being discouraged. When Paul is left alone and languishing in prison, he is discouraged. It's a place that all of us occasionally visit when we're in the faith. Isn't that right? And so how do we treat with such a person? It's a correction, but it's not a correction like we just did with the undisciplined. It's not showing up in their lives and going, hey, try harder. Hey, get up, start moving. This correction is stopping over and giving somebody a hug. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Did he need instruction? Did he need more information? Hey, guys, if you would just go ahead and give me some theological information as to why I'm about to go through what I'm going to go through. Did he need that? No, he just needed them to be around him. He wanted his disciples to stay near him as he prayed. When Paul was languishing in prison, he just wanted to know that the church has cared. Ask yourself this question. If you've ever been in a situation where you're like a funeral and you're, you're hurting deeply, do you want people to come give you theological platitudes or would you rather have a hug? 
This is what we're told to do. It is that, is that consoling, coming into somebody's life who's hurting and offering that hug. Comfort the discouraged. The third category of people who need help is to help the weak. The Greek here means to care for, to uphold, or support. That's the, that's the term help. The idea is I pick up somebody and I bring them along. All right, so sometimes we go into the ditch because we're disobedient. Sometimes we're in the ditch because life has beaten us down and we're discouraged. Sometimes we're in the ditch because that's kind of the natural state of where we are in life. There are people who are weak. Nobody wants to be described as weak, but we've all been there. Some of us will be there again. So how do you tell the difference between somebody who's insubordinate and somebody who's weak? Very simple. Maturity. How much do they know? How much do they understand? It's beginning to feel a little Christmassy. How much do they know? How much do they understand? Uh, let me just illustrate this. Um, when an infant passes gas or belches or sits at a table and just goes and just spits food all over the place, everybody's like, oh, cute. That's adorable. But as a child gets older, once they're getting to be elementary school years, if you see your child at the dinner table spitting out food or passing gas or belching loudly in polite company, it's a time to offer instruction. And you go, excuse me, listen, this is not how we behave. And you kind of correct them, right? What happens when a teenager does it? It's a call for rebuke. What are you doing? You're making us look like idiots, right? Or you have to clean that up, but you, you get upset. And if you see somebody who's like an adult doing that, you're like, there's something wrong with this person, right? Some of you maybe thinking about other people in the room, like, there's something wrong with that person. This is the description here. A new believer, a new believer is spiritually weak. They're not there yet. They don't know enough yet. And so the idea is carry them, help them along, be a part of that discipleship process. It's not that we continually carry them. There's something very wonderful about picking up and carrying an infant. It's a little weird when you're picking up somebody your same size and carrying them, isn't it? There's no reason somebody who has been in the faith for decades should be spiritually weak. Support such a person, help them, build them up. When somebody's new to the faith, when somebody maybe has been injured and is somewhat tender in the faith. When an individual maybe has the wrong theological ideas, that is a person who is weak and needs help, and the church is to come alongside them and correct and carry them. We're also told to stop the drama. Yeah, can I hear some more amens with that? Stop the drama. It has no place in the church. Look at verse 15. See that no one pays back evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another. Have you been injured in the church? Sounds, it sounds like a lawyer ad. <laughs> Have you suffered injury in the church? It just occurred to me. Uh, has someone stepped on your toes? Has someone said something offensive to you? Has someone acted inconsiderately to you? How do you respond? Like an idiot? Do you, do you fire right back? Do you try to injure people? This is not a difficult task. Stop the drama. There's no reason you should be trying to injure someone if they hurt you. As a believer, you're to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute. It's very easy to just look at a person and go, I'll treat that person Christ-like. I'll treat them well. Uh, by the way, the people who are doing the injuring in church usually fall into those broken categories we mentioned earlier. Somebody who's insubordinate, maybe they have pride issues, outbursts of anger, stuff like that, right? Or somebody who's maybe been injured or somebody who's weak. Very rarely do you have a mature Christian who is stomping on people's toes. So treat them Treat them as Christ would treat them. We're told not to repay evil for evil, but we're not told exactly what the good is. That is for a discerning Christian to figure out what is good, what is right for this person. Let's close out by talking about keeping the car between the ditches. Keeping it between the ditches. Have you ever trained your kids how to drive? Man, what a daunting enterprise. For those of you who have young kids, get ready. Oh, it's horrifying. The slightest shift of the wheel could send the car careening. It could be absolutely disastrous. And so we're engaged in this delicate balance as we're trying to train somebody to drive where we're, we're trying to encourage them and we're also trying to correct them. And that's the goal. This is kind of the same role the church has. It's this constant balance of correction and encouragement. And the churches that go into the ditch one side or the other really are doing it the wrong way. 
There are some churches that do nothing but correct, and the entire congregation in those churches thinks, I'm going to hell. Clearly, I'm going to hell. Because nobody's ever getting encouragement. And then there are churches on the other side that look at people who are doing the wrong things, thinking the wrong things, saying the wrong things, and they go, well, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And so they just continually lob encouragement at people who are in the ditches. Have a good time. Hope to see you there. Everything's fine. That's cruel. No church should be engaged in that. Spiritual weakness is okay for a time. We'll carry you for a while. But you need to learn how to walk. And you need to start moving on your own. Spiritual discouragement, being faint-hearted and small-spirited is okay. It is a normal and natural condition. But we are not natural. We are supernatural. You are geared for eternity. You're not meant to live there. And so the church, the good church, comes alongside and brings you along. And the church is here for correction. Being undisciplined or rebellious or just plain lazy, hey, that's a part of the sinful nature. And God gave us the church to slap us down when that's the case. Praise the Lord God. We love you that much. And I hope you love us that much. And all these things, we should be making progress. Hey, wherever you've been, in the faith, wherever you find yourself in the faith, the idea of the church is to encourage and correct. We are here for one another to keep one another moving down that road. Even the timid and cautious believers need their attaboys, and they're almost there, and you're doing it, and you got this. Every one of us needs to hear that, especially when the terrors of the road hit. When the worst things start happening, we need boldness. We need to be reminded where this road is going and that we're going to get there so long as we can keep it between the ditches. I'm going to close out with our passage memorized for this month. And let us consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not forsaking the fellowship of believers, the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day approaches. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I pray that we would be a church that looks at one another and offers courage. Father, that we keep one another going. Lord, when we need correction, I pray that we would be the church that, uh, that offers it, that gets people out of the ditch, that gives comfort where necessary, that gives rebu rebuke and correction where necessary, a Father that helps and supports and even carries the weak when necessary. And all these things, Father, we want to keep it between the ditches and keep moving through this life. Get us to that judgment day, and I pray that we would look forward to it, that with faith, hope, and love, we would be armored and sober. It's in your most precious name we pray, Father. Amen.